when we speak of the Trinity, whenever we're looking at those things that are shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is being omnipotent or omniscient or good, for example, um, it's traditional to say that we are speaking of the singular divine essence or being. However, when we are looking at something that is proper to only one of the persons, such as being the Son or such as being begotten, uh, traditionally, Christians have said that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Then we're moving into territory of processions and personal properties. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When we discuss the doctrine of the Trinity, a doctrine that is so essential to the Christian faith, What do we mean when we say that the Trinity, this holy Trinity, in fact, this blessed Trinity, the person should be defined by what we call personal properties or even a word like processions? Perhaps some of that language is new or foreign even to some of our listeners, but it's actually language that is rooted in the great tradition before us. And it's language that so many of the church fathers emphasize and adopted because they believed it faithfully articulated and explained the biblical witness. As they explained, language like personal properties or language like processions, this great tradition before us then elaborated on the meaning of key doctrines like eternal generation or perhaps even the Spirit's eternal spiration. Well, this brings us to the very edge of a, of a great mystery. How do we understand the Trinity? What does it mean to confess uh, this one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a way that doesn't compromise either these personal properties or the simplicity, the unity of this Trinity, these tendencies to compromise either one of these, whether it's a doctrine like eternal generation or something as significant as simplicity, well, this tendency to compromise or forfeit these important concepts has been one that has characterized evangelicalism for the last several decades. Thankfully, we are now experiencing a bit of a renaissance, a bit of a revival of Trinitarian thought, but not just any Trinitarian thought, especially not modern Trinitarian thought, but actually classical, Nicene, or what we might just call biblical Trinitarian thought. It's for this reason that I am thrilled to have on the Credo Podcast, Glenn Butner. Many of you may know Glenn from his past books. He's the author of The Son Who Learned Obedience, A Theological Case Against the Eternal Submission of the Son, published uh, a few years back. And he's also written uh, a recent book called Trinitarian Dogmatics, Exploring the Grammar of the Christian Doctrine of God. Glenn is Assistant Professor of Theology and Christian Ministry at Sterling College, where he also directs the Honors Program. Glenn has contributed to Credo uh, in many ways in the past, and so it's really great to finally have him on the Credo podcast to discuss a doctrine as important as the Trinity. 
Glenn, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Glenn, I think for a lot of our listeners out there, maybe they're pastors in local churches, maybe they're students studying in the ministry, uh, maybe there are other scholars who have uh, started to dip into the deep well of Trinitarian research. But regardless, I think many of them know just instinctively that they should be affirming a Nicene doctrine of the Trinity. And with that, we could use a word like consubstantiality. They understand that uh, what whatever person of the Trinity we are talking about, whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, they understand that they are consubstantial with one another. But at the same time, there's been a lot of confusion uh, over the last several decades as to how to distinguish the persons. Uh, what are these personal properties that sometimes are mentioned in the great tradition? How do we distinguish the persons and in a way that still preserves their divine simplicity? Uh, and this is one of the reasons why, Glenn, I'm so uh, thrilled to have you on because uh, you have given this a lot of thought, uh, not just um, historically, but even biblically. How is it that scripture, how is it that divine revelation itself uh, brings us to an understanding of the Trinity that is precise, uh, but it also brings us into the mystery of this infinite and, and holy trinity. And one of the ways that you've done that is you bring us into contact, not just with the biblical witness, but the great tradition. And so the first question that I, I just want to throw at you, Glenn, is for, and, and I know this is going through the minds of many of our listeners, when we use a phrase like personal properties, or perhaps another word like processions, what did the great tradition mean by these phrases? And, and maybe the, the question behind the question is this, why was this language even introduced to begin with? Those are great questions. So the idea of a procession and the idea of a personal property is really closely connected, but they're technically a bit distinct conceptually. When we speak of the Trinity, whenever we're looking at those things that are shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is being omnipotent or omniscient or good, for example. Um, it's traditional to say that we are speaking of the singular divine essence or being. However, when we are looking at something that is proper to only one of the persons, such as being the son or such as being begotten, uh, traditionally Christians have said that the son is eternally begotten of the father. Then we're moving into territory of processions and personal properties. And these are concepts that Christians have used to try and explain how Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally different, um, basically rejecting modalism, the idea that there's a singular God who just kind of appears in history in different forms. You know, one day is the Father, maybe the next day is the Son. Um, but traditionally, since well before the Council of Nicaea even, Christians have insisted that the distinctions are eternal. So the processions are the ways to think about those distinctions in relational terms. So the father eternally begets the son. The concept of eternal generation or eternal begetting is a relational concept describing that eternal relationship between father and son. And then speaking of eternal spiration or eternal procession of the Holy Spirit um, clarifies the relationship between the father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then, of course, we have this big debate between Western and Eastern Christians over how the Holy Spirit and the Son relate. Um, but we can just table that for a moment. The personal properties, on the other hand, are uh, properties that we would attribute 
to one of the divine persons based on these processions. So if we speak of eternal generation sort of as the relationship between father and son, then we can speak of the son as being generated, and that would be a personal property. Um, so it's a way to think about the uniqueness of the son um, that focuses a bit more on the unique characteristics of the son and a little bit less on the relationship, though it is still implied. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, uh, how would you describe the, you know, quote, personal property of the Spirit, too? So you could describe the Spirit as being spirated, or um, occasionally you'll hear uh, the Spirit is breathed, something like that. There's a bit, been a bit less consensus on how we talk about the Holy Spirit in the tradition than there has been about the Son. Now, these personal properties, as as they've been called by uh, so many in the great tradition, um, as they are elaborated on, uh, some have also made the important um, qualification or, or just comment that, well, these are incommunicable properties. What do they mean? What do they mean by that? And why is that so significant for understanding um, so much of what you just said? That's a great question. Um, and that idea of being incommunicable really is central um, to the point that some theologians will even define personhood, sort of what it is to be father, son, or spirit as an incommunicable existence. And so that would be Richard of St. Victor, for example. Um, the idea that they are incommunicable um, is to suggest that at an irreducible level, um, fundamentally, as deep as you can go in your understanding of who the Father, Son, and Spirit are, they are unique in ways that are not shared with the other divine persons. So why is the language specifically of incommunicable use? Why not just say unique? Um, that actually relates to the idea of the processions where say that the spirit, for example, proceeds from the father and perhaps from the son, that's the debated part, um, is to suggest that in some way, the sort of why of the spirit, why is the spirit here? The answer for that is the father, because the father has eternally spirated the Holy Spirit. And perhaps, and the son has spirated the Holy Spirit. So one thing that theologians have meant by that is that all of the divine properties that the spirit has the Spirit has because of the Father. So something like, um, again, the omnipotence of the Father has eternally been given to the Spirit through spiration. And yet, the incommunicable property of the Father, which would be the Father being unbegotten, that property cannot be communicated through the processions. So the uniqueness of who the Father is remains the Father's alone, even though the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. Mm. You know, you've mentioned that both, well, you've mentioned both eternal generation and also eternal spiration. So, you know, I, I think for many of our listeners, uh, these are concepts that are becoming more familiar to them. But at the same time, uh, we don't, we, we live in a context in which uh, these have been challenged. At uh, some points, they've even been denied. Uh, and here, we're not just referring to, you know, those uh, modern theologians, so that is certainly true, but we are also referring to even with the, uh, e the way that evangelicals have been suspicious in the past towards these important doctrines. 
So, Glenn, help us here because you argue that, and I and I really agree with you here that as much as these doctrines are come to us handed down from creeds like Nicaea uh, and the great tradition as a whole, there's good reason for that because they are embedded, ingrained, and quite natural to the biblical witness itself. So let's just take eternal generation. Obviously, we can't explore the range of biblical support for this doctrine, but can you give us just a bit of an idea of why the pro-Nicene tradition, um, especially in their debates with certain subordinationists, why they considered eternal generation a doctrine revealed in Scripture in a variety of ways? The pro-Nicenes drew on a lot of different things to make their case, and so I can mention a few passages of Scripture shortly. But I think at the deepest level, there's the recognition that the big picture of Scripture um, shows an eternal distinction between the Father and the Son. Um, The challenge of Arianism had been that the Son was created. There once was when the Son was not. So yes, Arians would often admit that the Son was generated, but what they meant by that and sometimes what they explicitly said um, was something close to saying the sun was the first of all creatures. The sun was made. Um, and later on, you even see some rejecting the idea of generation itself. So if the sun is made, like all creation, there would have been a beginning to this relationship. But scripturally, they saw there's good reason in many different places. One of the easiest would just be John 1. The beginning was the word. Um, but there many reasons to think that this eternal relationship between father and son has always been there. So then the question becomes, if we're going to talk about this in systematic theology, if we're going to profess this in a creed in the church, how are we going to name that eternal relationship? And this is where things get to be a bit trickier. We do see some places that speak of generation um, using that term. So, for example, Psalm 2-7, which the New Testament in a lot of different places, um, Acts 13, for example, or Hebrews 1-5 and 5-5, that Psalm 2-7, speaking of generation, is applied to the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, a lot of modern exegetes, they say, well, if you look closely at Acts and at Hebrews, that's not actually talking about the historic eternal relationship. Uh, I guess I shouldn't have used the word historic there because we're even thinking outside of time. Um, but that eternal relationship between father and son. In fact, what it's talking about is something related to the resurrection. So modern exegetes say, let's throw out this idea of generation. Um, But I think the pro-Nicenes were rightly focusing on a word that is used of the son's relationship to the father. And more than that, a word that is implied by the very language of son, because sons are begotten by their fathers. And they were saying, this is the word that we need to use in order to understand that relationship, in order to name it as something. Even if maybe the human author of Acts, even if Luke maybe didn't fully understand the implications of that in Acts 13. And a lot of modern exegetes have been really concerned about that. They say this this is not good exegesis. They're reading meaning into the text. You know, maybe they're concerned about Platonism or something is really shaping exegesis rather than God's word. But I make the case in chapter two of Trinitarian dogmatics, that I think this is a very defensible move because as we go on to understand in more detail what the pro-Nicenes meant by eternal generation, we can actually defend that 
pretty much each aspect of what they're speaking about is explicitly taught in scripture. Really, all that we need is a name to explain all of these aspects in a manageable way. And I can't think of a term that works better than the term that they chose from scripture, which is that of eternal generation. Mm. Now, laced in between everything that you're saying, Glenn, is... Uh, a distinction, and you hinted at it in a variety of ways, a distinction between what we might call theology and economy. And you are moving very seamlessly uh, from one to the other. Uh, scripture seems to give us warrant to do that, but in a way, but not just in any way, right? I mean, there's there's many ways that we look at the modern period in which moving from theology to economy or, or from economy to theology has been abused. Uh, I mean, there's many cases we think of all the history since Rahner and Karl hmm. Rahner in which the economic is the imminent or the imminent is the economic. And suddenly uh, there's this pressure to collapse the two. You mentioned this a minute ago, even in the way that the divine names are revealed to us, how exactly then do we move carefully from what we are witnessing in Scripture in terms of the economy of salvation, perhaps what we're seeing in the Incarnation, for example. How do we move carefully uh, from, from those missions in the economy to something like the Son's eternal generation? That's very good to direct me um, toward that question. That's one of the most important things when it comes to appealing to Scripture and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I know you've done good work yourself on that question. I think two principles that are extremely important. Um, the first is one that I appeal to throughout the book, and that is the doctrine of analogy. And in simplest form, the doctrine of analogy just says that anything we say about the Father there are some things, or excuse me, anything we say about God, Father, Son, or Spirit, um, using a word that also applies to creation. There are some ways that that word is going to be similar and some ways that it's going to be different. Um, so if I call God wise, I don't mean that through the course of his life, God has gradually learned things that makes him better able to navigate the world because God doesn't learn. God has always known everything. But I do mean something like God always acts in appropriate ways and knows the appropriate action that we ought to take as well. And there's a whole lot more I could say about wisdom, but um, that sort of illustrates the principle of analogy. So whenever you're looking at anything that is said of God in Scripture, including those things that are said of the economy, that's kind of a first principle is we need to think about what are these words actually doing? And so some recent proposals by evangelicals, for example, to try and serve as a substitute for eternal generation. Um, we don't need to go too far down this rabbit trail, but the idea of eternal submission was replaced. Um, but if you compare the two, you end up having to negate so much in terms of the idea of submission that there's really very little meaning left to it. Whereas generation, you do have to negate things. We're not saying that the son began or was born, you know, biologically speaking. But once you negate those things, there's enough substantive meaning left that the term still has purchase. It still teaches us something. Mm. Um, the other principle, though, is the need to distinguish between what is true of Christ and his humanity and Christ and his divinity. So partitive exegesis. I talk about this in my chapter on the persons and say there's a Christological compatibility criterion. When we're speaking about what it is to be a divine person like the Son, 
or the spirit or the father, uh, we need to do so in ways that if that idea of personhood is applied to Jesus when he is incarnate, that it doesn't mess up the theology of the incarnation. So as we're thinking about how to take scripture in the economy and whether it goes back into the eternal Godhead, we need to think if we need to ask the question, if I attribute this teaching of scripture to Jesus eternally, in other words, to his divinity, what does that leave for the humanity of Christ? And so quickly to go back to this example of eternal submission, if submission is something that we attribute to the divinity, traditionally there are two wills in Christ, one human and one divine. Um, But if we say it's something that's personal of the divine person of the son, then we leave no will of the human nature. And that ends up really causing problems for the different things that Christ had to accomplish in the incarnation. Uh, For example, his ability to be tempted and overcome that temptation on our behalf. Uh, If he's got no human will, he can't be tempted. So when you're thinking about a passage of scripture and saying this act in the economy, does it relate to um, who God eternally is in theology or in the imminent Trinity? Uh, First, you can ask the question of Christ, is this about his humanity? If so, no, it doesn't eternally apply. Or is it about his divinity? And second, if it's about his divinity, we still need to take the cautious step of applying analogy to make sure that we're using that word in a way that is fitting the eternal, immutable, simple, and perfect God. Mm. Now, you used a phrase that is, uh, I I just want to camp out for a minute on this phrase, uh, the way of negation. Uh, That phrase is so important. You used the other phrase, the way of analogy. But this other phrase, the way of negation, is so crucial when we are moving from economy to theology, from uh, what is occurring in the incarnation, for example, to our understanding of the Trinity apart from the world and salvation. Uh, For example, even when we are describing a doctrine like eternal generation, and and you just did this a minute ago, we are very quick, uh, as we should be, to say, yes, so this is the reason why we call the Son, Son, and the Father, Father. And yet, and and here's where this way of negation comes through, we don't mean that in uh, a way that would imply change, for example, as occurs in, say, a human begetting. Glenn, talk to us more about this way of negation, whether it's something like eternal generation or eternal spiration with the Spirit, or just uh, approaching the Trinity in general. Why is this way of negation so critical? Yes, the way of negation is absolutely vital. Um, And it's even sort of so vital that it's a component of that way of analogy because the analogy involves the negation and affirmation. So we really can't get very far at all in theology and the different ways of speaking without negating something. And that is because of the um, uncrossable distinction, we might say, between God and creation. Um, Yet God graciously has left his imprint in creation. He has made a world that um, we can know him through and that he has revealed himself in. Um, but that world remains eternally distinct from him. And so there are going to be certain things that are true of the world at a very fundamental level that are not true of God. Um, so I always tell my students in my classes, if we think about the claim that God created the universe, then we can list 
fundamental properties of the universe. And it usually takes them a while, but eventually they get there. What are kind of the fundamental properties of all of the universe? Things like it's subject to the laws of physics. It exists in space and time. Uh, it's filled with matter, energy, and things like that. Well, to say that God created the universe means that all space and time, the laws of physics and matter come from God who exists sort of outside of them or before them. And using that language of outsider before, you already see the limits of our human language because that's a, a time word before and a space word outside. And we're trying to say that God somehow exceeds these things. And so the safest thing that we can do is actually to negate these properties of God and say God is not in time, uh, which is what we mean when we say God is eternal, uh, or God is not in space, which is what we mean when we say God is uncircumscribed. So from an er a very early time, um, I would say most substantively, way back in origin of Alexandria in the 200s, we see theologians applying the way of negation or the way of analogy to the eternal processions. So consistently for centuries, if you're going to say that the father eternally begets the son, already that word eternally is doing some work in terms of negation. This is not something that happened in time. There was not, unlike maybe some other Near Eastern religions or Greek or Roman religion, there was not a time where God had a child that began to exist. And that was the son. The son has always been there. We negate that this is some sort of material process, as if God has DNA that was split through meiosis in the way that, you know, human birth occurs. Mm -hmm. We negate that there is any sort of division in God because of this, so that generation results in two gods, because the divine nature is simple and cannot be divided. And so we negate all of these things to try and clarify what we mean by something like eternal generation or paternal, eternal procession. And what we wind up with once we've negated everything is the claim that um, because there are two different processions, generation and spiration, son and spirit must be different. Because the processions are without division from the father, they must still be members of the Trinity. Because there can't be division, they must have the fullness of the Godhead. Um, they must have intimacy and, and close love with the father and so forth and so on. Um, but if we don't negate these different aspects of eternal generation, that's when people start to get confused. And if what I mean by eternal generation is that one day the father had a kid and that kid became a second God up in heaven, then we need to reject that. <laughs> that's not what historical Christians have ever really meant by eternal generation. And so mm -hmm. it's really important to negate those ideas so that we can understand what's truly being claimed and what has been since way back in the early church. Mm. Yeah. This way of negation is uh, it, it, it so pervades uh, the great tradition before us uh, and, and for so many good reasons because, I mean, when we think about the, the many different types of heresies that threaten the doctrine of the Trinity or even Christology uh, through the, the centuries, uh, this way of negation actually proved to be uh, a lifesaver in, in many ways. Um, and, and this is where even as that tradition advances. So we think, for example, of the fourth century through the fifth century, uh, from Nicaea to the definition of Chalcedon. But then even as it advances into the Middle Ages, this way of negation uh, continues to mature and to blossom in all kinds of ways. I, I can't help but uh, think here of the way that uh, 
Aristotelian language uh, also then comes into the service of Christian theology in order to uh, utilize this way of negation. And so, for example, when describing eternal generation, any number of medieval theologians uh, would appeal to something like pure actuality or pure act in God to say, well, when the Father begets the Son, we cannot think of that it, uh, like our human begetting as if there's this move from potency to act, as if there's a change even, um, a, a, an actualization of potential. Uh, Glenn, how does uh, this develop in the great tradition, and, and how does this language, what we now call classical uh, thought or classical theology, how does it serve in many ways our doctrine of the Trinity? You give us a, a great example of that development. Um, and I think it illustrates that what develops is the extent of negation that theologians learn to make. And what doesn't develop is actually that fundamental method of explaining the processions by way of negation and by way of analogy. Um, the commitment to that method really doesn't change until arguably maybe the 1700s, um, kind of a little while after the Reformation has been going, maybe earlier than that, but uh, anti-Trinitarianism keeps growing and growing, and some of the biblical defenses deployed sort of lose that metaphysical structure within which eternal generation had classically been defended. Um, but what we do see is into the Middle Ages, there increasing levels of sophistication as theologians think of new things that need to be negated. Um, so if you're looking at origin, there's, you know, a handful of properties that he negates when speaking of eternal generation, but certainly by the time you get to Aquinas and even theologians after that, there's far more that's being negated. Um, and what that gives to the church is an ever clearer sense of something that I think in a certain way we can never fully understand. Um, we can't fully grasp the infinite depths of what it is to be father and to be son. But by God's grace, he's given us enough in scripture and given us the gift of human reason to analyze and understand scripture so that we can understand who God is in ever deeper ways. And that depth, that deeper mining of scripture really did continue through the Middle Ages and even into something like Reformed scholasticism, for example, um, so that for those who do think the doctrine of the Trinity is irrational or unbiblical, or that it's somehow incompatible with the divine attributes, um, we have answers. We just have to go back to the tradition. These arguments have already been made. There are rational ways of defending this. It does fit with scripture. And there is actually something meaningful gained. In fact, quite a lot that's meaningfully gained by speaking about things like eternal generation and eternal spiration. Mm. Now, Glenn, the, I, I suppose the elephant in the room here is the doctrine of divine simplicity, because maybe for some of our listeners, they're following you, okay, they're understanding how, these, how to, how to uh, articulate these personal properties, uh, how to do this uh, by way of negation, as you just described, or by way of analogy. Uh, but they may still be a bit ambiguous as to, in their minds, maybe they feel a tension between these personal properties on the one hand 
and divine simplicity, on the other hand, the, the fact that God is without parts, how do you, I mean, you do this so well as you argue for the Trinity, um, in light of especially what we've talked about, you know, the way of analogy, for example, how do we understand Father, Son, Spirit in a way that doesn't, because I think this has been the, some of the tendency uh, of late to forfeit simplicity in some sense, as if that has to go in order to say what you've said about these personal properties. How do we avoid that type of mistake? Yes, that's, there's a very close link between simplicity and the processions. And historically, there always has been. Um, and it's a very thorny and tricky question. I mean, we could get so deep on this that my head would start to hurt. All the <laughs> listeners would stop listening. You would never invite me back. Um, and people can go a lot deeper than I can. There, I could point you to theologians who are more gifted in this question. Um, I try and set the parameters in this book. Um, to give us a good starting point to understand how these two things fit together. Um, so I situate simplicity as one way of thinking about the divine unity that is especially focused on the way of negation. So to say God is simple is just to say God is not composed of parts. There are not different things that are put together to explain what God is. And there's been a lot of great work in the last decade, maybe even a little bit less, on thinking about that from the context of the doctrine of God. So James Dolezal, for example, great work looking at how this sort of defends the ultimacy of God. Um, to put it in a really simplistic fashion, if you want something much more complicated, you can read his great work. Um, but things composed of parts need an explanation. And there's needs to be some reason why these parts are together. But if God is the ultimate explanation, then um, he can't be composed of parts. That's ridiculously simplistic. As I said, we can go a lot deeper. I don't dig into those arguments quite as much as I look at how simplicity actually functions for the doctrine of the Trinity. Hmm. And so several of the things that we get that are really important for the doctrine of simplicity, if we say God is not composed of parts, that negation, as we're talking about the Trinity, first of all, it prevents us from establishing a hierarchy of divinity. So a lot of early Christian heresies, subordinationism being one, Arianism being another, um, the spirit fighters and Pneumatomachians, they would suggest that through eternal generation or through eternal spiration, um, the resulting deity is lesser. So the son would be less than the father at an ontological level in terms of who the son actually is. Simplicity says that's impossible. If the father is not composed of parts, then the son can't receive part of the father. There's no such thing as part of the divine nature. You either have all of the divine nature or you have none of it. And this is actually what theologians on both sides of the arguments of Christ's divinity begin to argue. Uh, Eunomius says, okay, that means Jesus the Son is not God at all. And of course, the pro-Nicenes say, no, this means he must be fully God. And so in terms of the Trinity, simplicity ensures the full equality of Father, Son, and Spirit by rejecting a hierarchy of divinity. The other thing it does sort of at a dogmatic level that I think is most important, and it does a few more things here, but the other thing it does is ensure the singularity of God. How can we continue to speak of there being one God while also naming God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Well, if the processions do not divide the divine nature into parts so that the father has one part, the son has one part and the spirit has another part, um, then we don't have three gods. We instead have three persons existing as one God, one deity, one being. Um, and so the doctrine of simplicity is fundamental to the grammar of classical Trinitarianism, mm. both in the pro-Nicene era and all the way up into Middle Ages and uh, Reformed and Lutheran scholasticism. So it's something that we really can't afford to jettison and get rid of without kind of undermining all the traditional explanations of the doctrine of the Trinity. And Glenn, would, would you add to that, that when uh, simplicity is articulated in, in this Trinitarian context, that this also explains, at least in part, I suppose, why language like modes of subsistence is used? That is a helpful clarification that we can make on the basis of simplicity. Um, so we're not speaking of persons as things. We're not speaking of them as parts. Uh, a mode of subsistence, you know, kind of poorly translated, something like a, a way of being um, is what we're referring to when we think of Father, Son, and Spirit because they don't divide the divine being. Um, so that's a great connection that you made and that many others have made throughout history. Mm. Glenn, I, I want to give you the last word here because uh, in your treatment of the Trinity, you, you so helpfully, and, and to our listeners, uh, be sure you read Glenn because he's a gifted theologian. He is very clear in the way he defines terms. Uh, even though he is uh, swimming in some very deep waters, uh, he brings you along in a way that uh, provides more clarity than ambiguity, uh, which I, I think is very commendable. Uh, Glenn, at the same time, you're, it's not simplistic. Um, in the worst sense of that word, uh, so much of what you're doing here is rooted in a dogmatic Trinitarianism. So, Glenn, let me just give you the, the last word here. Why is it the case that, well, let, let me say it this way, why, how would you encourage maybe some younger theologians out there to uh, study and articulate and write on the Trinity in a way that is more dogmatic than, than we've done in the past? I think I would encourage two principles. Um, first, it's really important to be very careful and precise in defining what you mean by your words. And it's okay if sometimes you don't quite know what you mean. So when I talk about simplicity, I give a range of different interpretations people have had for what do we do with the divine attributes if simplicity is true. Um, I know for a fact simplicity means X, Y, and Z, but here's an area where I'm not quite sure. And there are things I've ruled out. I think, you know, probabilistically, I have one view of simplicity that I think is most likely, but I can see where people are coming from in other areas. But if we're really precise and saying, this is what we know, this is what we probably know, this is what we aren't sure of, then it kind of sets us up with all the pieces in the right place. So if understanding the Trinity is far more complicated than chess, um, you can't even play a game of chess if you don't have the pieces clearly understood at the start of the game. Same thing for the doctrine of the Trinity. So we need to spend a lot of time being precise in explaining the terms and concepts we're using. But then second of all, we need to understand how these terms and concepts really relate to one another. 
And that's one thing I really try and focus on throughout the book and really a lot of my theological work. Okay, we now understand what I mean by processions. Well, then in the podcast, we explained how is it that the processions are then linked with simplicity? We should go from there and talk about how simplicity is linked with the idea of consubstantiality. We can go from there and connect these ideas to divine personhood and so forth and so on. Um, once you have the pieces all clearly understood and defined, and you understand sort of how they operate. We then need the larger strategy of how to put all these pieces together to produce a winning result, um, to produce a result that actually expresses orthodoxy in a comprehensible way that can still lead us to glorify God through the beauty that we see in it. So if you are listening and you're a, a younger theologian um, or pastor or just somebody who wants to be able to talk to your kids about the Trinity, define your terms carefully and explain how they relate well to one another. And I think that's about the best way that you can get started on a complex doctrine like the Trinity. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.